podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Opioid use disorder is a significant public health issue affecting millions of Americans. In fact, in 2019, over 21 and a half million Americans needed treatment for OUD, but only two and a half million received any treatment. That's seven out of every eight people going untreated. Patients with opioid use disorder will likely relapse, but that doesn't mean the treatment or the patient failed. It just means the treatment needs to be adjusted or changed. Just like with hypertension or diabetes, we don't stigmatize the patient when their A1C goes up or their blood pressure isn't at goal. Instead, we work with them to find the best treatment and plan that works for them. And it's no different when working with people who have OUD. This is a treatable disease and can be safely managed or initiated by most advanced practice providers. We need to increase the number of patients receiving treatment by educating ourselves and our colleagues and by addressing all disease processes using a holistic approach to wellness. In this engaging episode, nurse practitioners Dr. Laura Leahy and Colleen Berry share their expertise and knowledge as they discuss various aspects of opioid use disorder. They also inspire us to think about the language we use and the importance of treating our patients with dignity, honesty, and respect while navigating the challenges of the recovery toward health. This is not a behavioral problem, but a chemical change. Our patients deserve to be approached without bias or judgment. Well, hello to our listening audience today. Welcome to AAMP's Opioid Use Disorder Podcast, exploring the ins and outs of opioid use disorder. I am Dr. Laura Leahy. I am a psychiatric and addictions advanced practice nurse with over 30 years experience practicing in southern New Jersey outside of Philadelphia. I am a fellow in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, as well as a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing. And I have also been chairing the Addictions Council for the American Psychiatric Nurses Association for the past number of years. I'm also here with my dear colleague, who is faculty on the Opioid Use Disorder Pocket Guide, which was recently published through AAMP. And I will turn it over to Colleen to introduce herself. Thank you, Laura. This is Colleen Berry. I'm a nurse practitioner. I am board certified in family and addiction medicine. I've been practicing primary care and addiction medicine since 2015, usually in a behavioral health setting. We're going to start today discussing opioid use disorder and how we got here. Back in the 1980s, we had the war on drugs. At this time, we had a big push to start treatment for pain. In 1996, the American Pain Society declared pain as the fifth vital sign. So at this time, drug manufacturers started making big pushes for longer-acting opioids with the expectation that they're not addicting or dependent for me. As we can see now, in the current time, we have about 10 million people who misuse prescription opioids. And 1.6 million people in the United States have an opioid use disorder. Yet, Colleen, we, we very much under-treat this disorder. 
It's remarkable how many people die on an annual basis. In fact, during COVID from March of 2020 to March of 2021, we lost 97,000 individuals to opioid use disorder alone. That doesn't account for deaths related to alcohol, suicide, or other substances. 97,000 people died of an overdose during that period of time. What's going on? How do we get to the next place where we aren't losing almost 100,000 people a year to opioids? I mean, opioids are still available. We still tout pain as an undertreated diagnosis in our country. Yet people are dying from prescription as well as illicit overdose, such as heroin and the fentanyl that's now on the street, which has caused great problems for our population of opioid use disorder patients. Absolutely. So, you know, Laura, the research that I was doing while working on this book, I found that 80% of the patients that have used heroin started with prescription pain medications. 80%. Only about 4% of those abusing pain medications move to heroin. So those statistics are, are scary. I've also looked up statistics on patients who have chronic opioids prescribed to them for chronic pain. The National Institute on Drug Abuse shows that the statistics for developing an opioid use disorder is about 8 to 12%. So those that are using pain medication for chronic pain have an 8 to 12% chance of developing an opioid use disorder. So let's step back a minute. Where are people getting their medications? If they're, It sounds like the prescription opioids are still very prevalent in our society. And from what I have researched, it's really not the drug dealer on the street in which people are getting their prescription opioids. In fact, less than 1% are getting it from a street dealer. Over 50% are getting it from a friend or a relative. So that means it's right here in our own houses. And we're either giving it to our friends and relatives, they're taking it from us. In the, and most of those prescriptions that are given by a friend or a relative come from only one practitioner. Back in the 80s, when we had the war on drugs, we used to think that those who developed a use disorder were going to various practitioners, trying to hide their use by going to various pharmacies. It's really been dispelled. Less than 1% use more than one practitioner to obtain their prescriptions. So it's coming from within, or at least starting within our own households, with over 50% of us giving these medications away to friends and relatives. Absolutely. And most providers, when they're educated on how to prescribe pain medications, they're taught to use the drug prescription monitoring program so they can kind of keep track of how many prescriptions they're getting, how many providers, how many pharmacies they're using. But what they're not doing is random drug screens. They see that the patient is picking up the prescriptions appropriately, but if they were to do a random drug screen here and there, they may find that although they're picking up every month, their levels in their system don't match up. That's really a good point. Not only for patients who've been diagnosed with an opioid use disorder or just trying to capture any kind of use disorder through a screening, but also for our patients' own knowledge related to what else is out there in the substances they may be taking, whether it's from a friend or family member if it gets into someone else's hands and there's diversion, heroin may be mixed with those prescription opioids or substances. We used to think of UAs, the urine analysis and urine drug screens as a punitive measure 
to catch somebody, quote unquote, with their use. But really, it can be very protective. And I think, you know, when we look at the use disorders, in particular opioid use disorders, we're talking here today, as a chronic relapsing disease, we anticipate that there are going to be these lapses. And our patients are very, very honest with us about what may come up in their drug screen. So one day I had this patient, she comes in and her symptoms just aren't matching up with what she's claiming is in her drug screen. And we do the drug screen and here she has benzodiazepine, she has methamphetamine, she has PCP in addition to the opioids and, and heroin that are showing up. And so suddenly it became clear and she was terrified because this was a different presentation. She was, you know, getting her substances on the street from someone that she thought was a reputable dealer that she'd dealt with for a long period of time. But now there's all this other stuff in her drug screen. So it gave us pause to find a new way to treat and utilize drug screens as not a punitive measure, but as a collaborative measure to help the health of our patients overall. Absolutely. And you know, another scary fact that I have found from talking with my patients is Sometimes they'll put out those alerts that there have been opioid overdoses in the area. The scary thing is some of the patients that see that in the news will actually seek out that dealer because they want to buy a stronger form of an opioid for less money. So sometimes they're seeking out these stronger opioids and trying to reduce back on the amount they use so they can make their money last longer. So not only are they picking up things that they're not quite sure what's in them, they're actually buying lethal doses and trying to cut back, which is terrifying. It sure is. And, you know, we touched on that opioid use disorder is a chronic relapsing disease. With your background, Colleen, in primary care, family medicine, can you share a little bit about what chronic disease looks like? I mean, we've compared it to asthma, hypertension, and this has only really come around since the 90s, this thinking that addiction as a whole is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. We know there's brain physiology that's behind this. And could you speak a little more to that? I can. We actually have a nice chart in one of the articles we were using when we wrote this book, Relapse in Common Chronic Diseases. So I was looking at hypertension and asthma, just to name two, actually have a 50 to 70% chance of relapse. Now, in the primary care setting, we treat diabetes, hypertension, asthma, COPD. And just to give an example of hypertension, if someone were to come in with a blood pressure of, say, 180 over 102, we're not going to tell them to stop eating salt. We're not going to tell them, go get your blood pressure under control and come back and talk to me when it's more appropriate. We're going to immediately treat them medically. We're going to treat them with antihypertensives. And then once they come back, we've got them on medication that gets their blood pressure under control. We're going to start teaching them exercise, weight loss, cholesterol, decrease sodium intake, eat healthier foods. We're going to try to change their lifestyle to help bring that blood pressure more under control along with medication. And then once we have a good blood pressure, less than 120 over 80, the last thing we're going to do is stop the medication and tell them now try to maintain on your own. So if you try to put opioid use disorder in with any other medical disease process, you're going to treat it in the same way. Laura, we're going to offer medication to help get them so their cravings are under control, their symptoms are under control, 
Now we're going to start working with them on lifestyle changes. But the last thing we're going to do is take all that away when we start to see improvement. That's so true. And I think that's where the shift has occurred in that this is this chronic relapsing disease. We know that our patients, 90% of them are going to relapse within six months. So do we punitively have them sign contracts and say, oh, if your urine screen is positive for any form of opioid, we can't treat you anymore. You're absolutely right, Colleen. We would never do that with someone with diabetes or my favorite is patient with diabetes and they go to a wedding and eat a piece of wedding cake. We would never kick them out of our practice for blood glucose over 300. But yet we do that with our patients with opioid use disorder. And this just perpetuates the stigma and shame that our patients experience. After a year, 66% are going to relapse. After two years, 40% are still going to relapse. And it doesn't drop until under 15% until one of our patients is five years or more in recovery. But that recovery can happen. And I think you brought up a really great point that we do have medications now. We have three medications that are approved by the FDA to treat opioid use disorder. And they have been very successful in conjunction with the psychosocial treatments and therapies that we have to offer as nurses in primary care in psychiatric addiction practices, as well as women's health. I know of a number of women's health practitioners who are treating individuals with opioid use disorder, not only them, but also treating the growing baby if they are pregnant. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about those medications, Colleen, and how we've you know, come to utilize them in the treatment and sustained recovery for our patients. Sure. I noticed you mentioned a positive urine drug screen after a relapse. Too many people will call it a clean or a dirty urine. I tell patients, you're clean when you shower. Part of the stigma we're trying to change is call it a positive drug screen. I want to see a negative drug screen. So changing that stigma is fantastic. And, you know, we have a really good quote. If you notice that something's not working quite right, it doesn't mean the patient's failed. It just means we need to change or adjust the treatments. So some of the medications that we do use for the treatment of opioid use disorder is full agonist like methadone. And what this does is it replaces the medication or the illicit substance they're using off the street, takes away their withdrawal symptoms, takes away their cravings, but it's a safe and controlled medication. Then we have partial opioid agonist, partial antagonist, buprenorphine, which also gives them a little bit of craving control, but also helps with those withdrawal symptoms. We also offer a total antagonist naloxone or extended release naloxone for patients who have been able to abstain from opioids for a period of 7 to 14 days. These medications also not only improve the health of our patients with opioid use disorder, but also the health of our society. We have less emergency room visits, less hospitalizations. They're reduced by 32% at three months. If our patients are maintaining the recovery, they're reduced by 26% if they're a year in recovery. We also see reduced costs of care in terms of total dollars spent on medical treatments for patients with opioid use disorder the longer they maintain their recovery. And more importantly, we see 76% reduction in overdose rates for patients who are three months in recovery and 59% at 12 months recovery. So it's worth it to look at these medications. And fortunately, we're not just locked into the quote-unquote methadone clinics anymore. 
where they are still federally regulated and have a, a series of regulations that need to be followed to treat patients with methadone. Now we have buprenorphine in our outpatient offices. We have extended release injectable naltrexone in our outpatient offices that any nurse practitioner, any advanced practice nurse, any provider who prescribes and has a DEAX waiver for the buprenorphine, anyone with license to prescribe medication can prescribe the Vivitrol, also known as extended release naltrexone. Not only that, but we also see that there are decreases in pain when individuals are maintaining their recovery, decreases in anxiety and depression, in addition to improvements in things like hepatitis and other communicable diseases. And I know, Colleen, that you have some experience in that realm as well. Yes. When the patients come in to me for treatment for opioid use disorder, we always offer screenings. We're going to check their CBC, check their platelets, check for infection, white blood cell counts. You know, some of them have been using intravenously. So we're going to look for any type of infection they may have. We screen them for STIs. We screen them for hep B, hep C, HIV. We offer a full panel to get a good look at what the patient's health status is when they come in. I've recently been passionate about the treatment of hep C. A lot of my patients will come to me, will develop a good working relationship. They'll trust me to refer them out to a GI specialist for hep C treatment. They get a little bit nervous or not follow through as often as I would like them to. So I've started taking it on as a project of mine to try to get these patients treated for hep C. So I worked in collaboration with another NP that specialized in gastroenterology, and I've started screening, getting the lab work, and starting treatment for these patients. And it's been a huge success. So you're right. Any nurse practitioner can start treatment for opioid use disorder. They can screen the patients. They can develop what other aspect of their health needs addressed at this time. They can treat the patient as a whole person and address all these issues. And I think that just comes back to one of the things that we've been trying to share with others and educate other advanced practice nurses, other practitioners, therapists, those who come in contact with individuals with any form of use disorder, is that our patients just want to be normal. They want to reintegrate into society. They want to be healthy from a physical perspective, an emotional perspective. They want to reduce the shame and stigma that they have experienced. And it's our obligation as healthcare providers to help with that in whatever way we can. So many of our patients with opioid use disorder have been treated in a very punitive and condescending in some ways manner by the healthcare establishment. So as you mentioned, they're fearful of going to say a GI specialist because the moment Another practitioner hears, oh, you have an opioid use disorder. Hands get thrown up. You know, we have a comment, oh, this is a frequent flyer in our program. No, it's a patient that we've treated before. And we need to look at this patient as an individual who is seeking health. They're not coming through our door because they want something else. They want to be healthy. And so treating them with the respect, I, I have heard so many times from my patients that they just want to be respected. You know, one of my patients said, do you think I really want to be driving around for two hours in the middle of a gun-riddled area of an inner city just to try to score my, my fix so I don't go through withdrawal? No, they want to 
be healthy and live their lives, but they've alienated so many friends and family members that it's become a very, very large obstacle. We as healthcare providers don't need to add to those obstacles. So many of my patients have walked through my door and their reason and motivation for starting treatment is, I just can't do it anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I don't feel good. I just can't do this anymore. I want to get a job. I want to get my kids back. I want to say hi to my mom and dad again. So you're absolutely right. When they come through the doors, just listen to them. Listen to their stories. Listen to what they've tried in the past. So many of them, too, have been through treatment multiple times, but there's always something missing. So we're going to try to figure out what they've tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked. A lot of times, untreated mental health is one of the main reasons these patients relapse back into use. And you had also mentioned being fearful for going to GI. A lot of these patients were started on prescription medications for a legitimate pain issue, whether it be a back injury. I had one patient at the age of 17 was in a car accident and he went through the windshield of a car. He was started on Vicodin, which was maintained over a period of years before they stopped it without a titration, without a plan. And then he turned to the streets for his opioid use. So getting them to a reputable pain management provider who's going to offer other options than just pain medications like injections or therapy. Sometimes neuropathic pain can be addressed. A lot of times if these patients do not have their pain treated, that's going to lead to relapse as well. As we know, this is a disease of the brain. That little spot in the center of our brain that controls our limbic system, the emotional part of our brain, the amygdala is very, very powerful in addiction and use disorders because it's the fight or flight center. And our patients are so fearful of going through withdrawal if they are active in their use disorder. The fear of withdrawal is overwhelming to so many of our patients. And as you mentioned, the treatment of pain with individuals with a use disorder is a very unique concept because with patients who are already on some form of opioid, they have a baseline. We need to treat over and above that baseline to manage pain from an acute injury or a chronic back injury, for instance, or surgical interventions. So we need to be really cognizant of these things when patients with a use disorder come through our door, that their fear is they're going to be stripped of whatever medication is holding them from going into withdrawal and that their pain is going to be treated, and that their overall health is going to be taken into consideration. You know, working in the behavioral health setting, a lot of my patients also have had significant trauma in their background. I had, a one, I had one young lady who wanted to stop using opioids, so I started her on Vivitrol. She was only able to maintain for about a month. She came back to me and said, the medication works. I don't crave. I don't use but I can't maintain this because what's happened to me in the past is so bad, I just can't do it sober. So she actually stopped the medication and she went back to using. She said what she would have to go through for therapy to improve was just too traumatic for her. So it's sad how many of these patients start opioids also to numb what's happened to them in the past. And as a psychiatric and addictions advanced practice nurse, I see this over and over and over again in my practice. 
that mental health component, well, the statistics may show that it's about 50% comorbidity with use disorders. I would venture to say, at least anecdotally, it's much, much greater, greater than 75, 80% of individuals have a significant underlying condition that precludes them from being treated in a holistic manner. So we're dealing with not only the use disorder, but also the mental health aspects and the physical aspects, and then the whole greater social aspect of their care. Many of our patients, as you know, Colleen, have their social circle revolves around the individuals that they use with. That's their lifeline. That's the individuals that they connect with. And so many of my patients have lost what they call friends to overdose over the years. I have one patient who can name 12 people he's lost to overdose in the past three years. Just think about any of us who loses someone we care about, even if you know, society deems that caring is misdirected. This is another form of trauma for our patients. Who did they get to talk to about this? We know that there is a paucity of mental health providers in our country, and the wait lists are astronomical. Three months, six months is not unheard of if practitioners are even taking patients on. So treating these in-depth traumas is an exasperating challenge for our patients. And so I can completely understand how the patient you were just discussing would go back to numb that pain because that's where she's finding the relief. Absolutely. And it's not always just the friends or the peer groups. A lot of times, too, it's family members. So some of these patients were started because they've watched their father or their stepfather or their mom or their big brothers. We take these patients in, we help them maintain sobriety, and then they go back home for a family function and they're around the other people that would use. So they're triggered all the time just trying to maintain that family circle. So... How do we help our patients break this cycle, break the shame, break the stigma that they experience on a daily basis? And this isn't unique just to patients. Opioid use disorder is pervasive throughout our society. It affects nursing. It affects physicians. It affects therapists. It affects the individual who's working in one of the fast food places. No one's immune to opioid use disorder. How do we help to break this cycle as advanced practice nurses? I think we're in such a unique position that we can integrate the care, looking at that whole person from a health perspective, a mental health perspective, not just they are their disease, they are their addiction. We as advanced practice nurses have the opportunity to partner with our patients in a different way to support them in reducing that stigma and shame and getting the help and treatment that they so so readily want. So Colleen, we talked a lot about how we got here, but the bigger question is where do we go from here? Where do we go to help our patients move into that long sustained recovery to regain their lives? And for that, I ask you all to stay tuned for part two of the opioid use disorder discussion. <laughs> Thank you, Laura and Colleen, for joining us on NP Pulse. I want to personally thank you for sharing your expertise on this extremely important topic, and I look forward to your next episode. 
To our listeners, I hope you found this episode as valuable as I did and can apply some of what was discussed in your practice. Be sure to visit aamp.org and check out our Opioid Use Disorder Point of Care Tool, which has resources and tools for identifying, screening, and managing patients with OUD. The link can also be found in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner.